Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we will be exploring psychokinetic weather control. My guest is Danny Caputi. She is a doctoral candidate in atmospheric science at the University of California at Davis and has given presentations on uh, her psychokinetic weather control research program for the Society for Scientific Exploration and also for the Consciousness Society meeting in Tucson, Arizona. Welcome, Danny. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, I'm a person who has looked deeply into the question of psychokinetic weather control when I did uh, a lengthy field study with uh, Ted Owens, a man who claimed to have extraordinary powers in that regard and demonstrated it many times. But actually, the lore, the tradition of weather control is, is very ancient. It goes back to shamanistic mm-hmm. times. Yeah. And actually, one of the things that I think might be worth um, mentioning up front is um, I actually, I don't typically think of it as control because when that's how I kind of thought of it at first, because yeah. when we're thinking of PK or mm-hmm. like, you know, psychokinetic influence, like mind over matter, you're thinking mm-hmm. of it as I am controlling this. Mm-hmm. Um, but the more I looked into it with these, um, what these shamanistic traditions actually uh, preach and what they actually tell us is that it's not about control. It's not about you having power over nature. It's about working with it. Um, More like harmonizing exactly, yeah. your consciousness with nature and then gently guiding it in a direction that you might prefer. Exactly. And it's like um, one of the things I, I learned is that sometimes it's not uh, the direction you prefer might not always be what's needed. And mm-hmm. sometimes what will happen is what's needed for the benefit of everybody. You know, this is w- according to the... Uh, what those traditions teach who, mm-hmm. you know, seem to have some people that are very talented at working with weather. But yeah. that's the way I think of it is that mm-hmm. it's, it's more about harmonizing yourself with nature rather than, um, having control over it. And I think that might be an important shift that we might need to make in sort of this macro PK type research mm-hmm. where, um, you know, cause a lot of researchers are looking for very talented participants that we kind of know are out there anecdotally, but a lot of times they don't want to come into the lab Mm -hmm. to, you know, to demonstrate their abilities because they think that that is in a way, you know, contradictory to their values is about proving that they have control. So I think one of the ways we might, you know, going forward, one of the ways we might try to approach this such that we can sort of unify our, you know, Western scientific perspective with that more uh, traditional shamanistic perspective is sort of um, seeing the value of both mm-hmm. and um, uh, working with them in such a way that or designing our experiments such that they're more harmonistic in nature and not mm-hmm. directly 
controlling. You know, um, now that I think about it, the, there is, uh, when you look in the folklore, it's very rich in, yeah. in this area. And I can think of one occasion in which, uh, a, what was called a Hexenmeister, a fellow mm-hmm. from, uh, I think probably the early 20th century in the United States in one of these rural Amish communities, mm-hmm. as I recall, who was a master of hexes and would control the weather. And, uh, one day, according to the book written about this person, he was out and, and it was storming and he got angry and he started, uh, uh, yelling. Mm-hmm. At, at the weather, you know, you stop it. Don't you know who I am? I'm the Hexenmeister. <laughs> and, uh, he, he said, you, you stop it right. He was struck by lightning while he was cursing the weather. <laughs> Figures. <laughs> so, uh, I, I mean, it's remarkable. There are other stories uh, about the, the weather where, um, in the middle of a rainstorm, a Tibetan Lama was able to create, uh, in front of a gathered assembly for a great Tibetan mm-hmm. ritual where it was raining all around the participants of the ritual just in one spot the clouds broke the sun shone the rain stopped mm-hmm. and everybody is warm and sunny while they see all around them rain falling right i've i've heard of that one too mhm yeah so you wrote a whole book on this subject kind of well yeah. with one particular person one person he right. who uh, believed he either controlled the weather psychokinetically himself or with the aid of uh, other dimensional beings who he said uh, looked like giant insects and lived in an invisible UFO, an invisible giant UFO that hovered over the planet. And mm-hmm. uh, But he would do things like predict, I, or not just predict, claim his predictions were statements of what he intended to cause in his mind, and it would be heat spells in the middle of winter, cold mm-hmm. spells in the middle of summer, uh, controlling the movement day by day of hurricanes, mm-hmm. uh, affecting power blackouts, uh, large-scale effects of all kinds, uh, yeah. including volcanoes and earthquakes. And uh, a very interesting story uh, is that on one occasion, he was really angry. He got angry because he was having an affair. He was a married man, but he was having mm-hmm. an affair. His girlfriend broke up with him, and he was furious. And that day... There were like 200 tornadoes that appeared all over the United States. Mm-hmm. and <laughs> Tornado outbreaks. <laughs> yeah, tor- and, and it wasn't anything he intended to do, but it, he noticed that it correlated with this fit of anger that he yeah. had had. There was actually, that reminds me, there is somebody who is a colleague of mine. Um, I'm going to keep him anonymous for now, mm-hmm. but um, this is a weather colleague I had, and he was doing some research in Boulder for a summer internship, mm-hmm. and... Um, this is actually, I, I wrote this, I documented this, this a number of years ago in that uh, proposal that I wrote for like how we can approach weather influence. But basically what happened was he was in a situation where he was very angry mm-hmm. and there was a storm some number of miles away, but pretty close. And he threw his fist up into the air and lightning occurred at the exact moment mm-hmm. and... So to him, it was, that was either a crazy coincidence or he just created lightning. Yeah. And then five minutes later, he did the exact same fist motion and bam, that exact second, lightning occurs. 
And there were no other lightning strikes that entire night from that storm.、Mm-hmm. Now I went back and I looked at all the data I could. The storm cell、uh, on radar looked kind of marginal for what you would even expect to even produce lightning.、Mm-hmm. So, you know, and and just by the sheer probability of you know what are the chances of those two exact events overlapping?、Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's pretty low. So, what would you estimate? Um. I think I did a back of the envelope calculation、uh, and came up with roughly one in seventy-two thousand.、Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's hard to say because this was not a intended experiment.、Yeah. So you might make the argument: well, you know, out of seventy-two thousand events, something of this sort might happen.、Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, it was very interesting, and it kind、mm-hmm. of, you know. Um, sort of woke up his mind to the idea of maybe there's something we're not capturing here with all this research that we're doing about you know the physical process of processes of the atmosphere. Maybe there's a consciousness component、mm-hmm. that we're overlooking.、Yeah. Um, a number, an, another recent case I can think of is、um, uh, the El Reno tornado in 2013,、mm-hmm. uh, the one that was、uh, very. Um, it's it's one of the most destructive ones of the past decade, basically, and it was very erratic behaving. And there is a Native American tribe.、Um, I forget exactly the details, but it was in the path of it, and they're basically saying they're the ones who collectively intended it to turn in one direction. So this kind of brings me to my next point, which is I want to make a distinction between. So I think I think the cases you talk about with Ted Owens in your book.、Yeah. Are frankly some of the best documented cases we have of potential weather influence.、Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to make a distinction between、um, sort of large scale big events like I'm intending a heat wave to come in three days or a huge rainstorm in three days. It's going to rain for like and snow for you know a half a week. Yeah. Versus the kind of situation where. You're standing in, let's say, you're doing a rain dance on a clear day, and the air is stable, and there's like, you know, no apparent threat of rain, and then a cumulonimbus cloud just develops, and then you get rain, and then it dissipates. Those are very different in terms of how we would look at those.、Mm-hmm. So in the form, so you might think that the larger scale events might be more of a proof oriented thing, where it's like. You're looking at those, and you might go, "Oh, well, that's more evidence because it's a bigger thing." I actually see it the other way because the atmosphere is so complex that these sort of large-scale, long-time-scale events, you could try to model them. You know what I mean, and and try to make an argument that it was actually consciousness that started the effect. But I, I argue it's actually it's easier to, to show that if let's say we have a case where it's a completely stable day, right? And this is in the middle of a drought, let's say, and the air is totally stable, you know, extremely unlikely physically for showers to develop, and then you somehow do an experiment where you、um, get a bunch of talented weather workers together and. They produce a shower. That would be a phenomenal example of macro PK,、mm-hmm. in my view, and that would be very easy to, if we could do that under the right conditions, that kind of experiment. And 
launch radio sounds, which, you know, capture temperature profiles going up and do the right kind of observations around it. That would, I think, be a really, that, that would really shed light on what exactly is going on. What is this link between consciousness and the physical world? We could, and we could sort of really capture what's happening in this macro PK sort of environment. Mm-hmm. Now, I have yeah. approached the topic from uh, my background in parapsychology. To my knowledge, you are the very first atmospheric scientist <laughs> to take a look at it, but maybe I'm wrong. I mean, you must have other colleagues who you've discussed this with who there, there must be kind of an underground or, or, or at least folklore <laughs> within your professional community regarding this sort of thing. Yeah, you know, there, it's interesting you bring that up because, um, you know, a lot of, some other parapsychologists have actually warned me, you know, you really shouldn't talk about this stuff at your state in the grad program and, you know, where you're at now. But surprisingly, my dissertation committee, for example, they're pretty open to the idea. Now, of course, in terms of what I actually write for a dissertation, um, it's pretty limited in terms of how how much I can speculate into this world or how far I can go into the linking consciousness with it. Mm. But nevertheless, um, they've been pretty supportive in, and, uh, in, in my ideas and, and supporting my sort of general philosophy of this is an interesting question we should pursue is, mm-hmm. you know, what is this link between consciousness and the physical world? And how does that play into studying our, our, um, study of the atmosphere? Mm-hmm. You know, one very interesting study, now that I think about it, was done by Roger Nelson yeah. at Princeton University, mm-hmm. uh, looking at the Princeton University graduation ceremony, which was held outdoors in June, mm-hmm. and comparing the weather uh, for over many years on graduation day versus the day before and the day after. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he found uh, that surprisingly, yeah, there was... Uh, less rain, statistically significantly less rain on graduation day, which would have met at that location, right? Which obviously would mean a lot to the participants. Although there's no evidence that anyone exerted uh, conscious intention to change the right. weather, and that, to my knowledge, that's pretty much the one formal study that's been done on this. There was actually there was a graduate student. Um, mm-hmm. Her name is Myrna, who. Um, I forget where she was at, but she, uh, we were in touch a number of years ago and she was trying to replicate Roger Nelson's, mm-hmm. um, work and I gave her a few suggestions. Um, yeah, the problem is, um, see, I, I think we could definitely expand that, uh, cause that was done in 97. We have better radar coverage now mm-hmm. and all sorts of ways of getting data. Um, and there's, um, I know that there's enough from, it's been a little bit of time since I have, read that study. But from what I remember, there were a couple things that I might approach approach differently. Like, for example, I think he just looked at whether or not it rained. I would look at, you know, whether or not the rain crossed some uh, intensity threshold. Uh-huh. So I think that might be what people really, you know, care about. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so... The point is, it, this has not been formally studied that much yet. In spite of the right. vast folklore. Exactly, yeah. Now, I should acknowledge that mm-hmm. there are, um, you know, there is this whole sort of other world to this where there's the um, cloud-busting thing by yes. 
Wilhelm Reich oh, yes. and all of that. Yeah. Um, and there have been some people that have done some uh, experiments with that. The way I see it, though, is that um, it's... It's hard to, to really know what's going on. Like, was that actually the orgone energy or was that their intention? Mm-hmm. Now, they'll make the argument that they know it was the orgone energy and not their intention because when they just try it with intention, it doesn't work as well. But my problem with that is if they already have some preconceived notion that the orgone energy is going to work better, then of course it's going to work better when you're using that you know mm-hmm. it doesn't to me that doesn't really make the argument that that's not just a vehicle for intention right and so uh, that's kind of where i you know th- that's how i like to approach this is that i i look at it in a fundamental way like what is you know what is underlying this you know a- as far as i know this could all be intention you know what i mean all these rituals all these you know fancy names of types of energy we come up for this might be just our way of thinking about it, but at the end of the day, it could be all intention, mm-hmm. you know? So that's kind of what I personally am inclined to think just be, you know, just by Occam's razor sort of, you know, it's kind of a simpler explanation. I don't know that for sure, but that's, that's how I think of it usually. Well, and certainly that's the way parapsychologists tend to think about it. Right. In, in yeah. terms of intention. Right. If you talk to someone in, um, what's it called? Like if you, if you talk to a traditional, like, let's say a religious person, you know, they would say it's the prayer that works. You know what I mean? It's the, and it's the specific deity they're praying to. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And if, if in one case their prayer was answered remarkably, they might say like, wow, that's proof of this deity. But I would say, you know, no, that's, if anything, that's proof that your intention did something in that case. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's no need to invoke an extra deity here. Right. It's the same kind of thing with this cloud busting thing, the way I see it. It's like, what's really the need to invoke this orgone energy when we could just explain it with intention? Well, yeah. I, of course, <laughs> it takes more than a simple experiment to, right. to get mm-hmm. at at these questions. I think if you talk to many practitioners uh, of a shamanistic nature, they, mm-hmm. their fundamental worldview is animistic. And right. By that, I mean they perceive everything to be alive, mm-hmm. including the, the wind, the clouds, uh, are all uh, at some level conscious and responsive to human thought. Right. And uh, if that's their belief system, uh, it may well be that that uh, belief system uh, is more effective for people than to think that I, you know, a humble human being with a, a little ego can possibly influence the weather. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. So uh, it, it's tricky. You've got to deal with uh, the pragmatic Mm-hmm. Uh, effect of a belief system versus the truth value of a belief system. They're, they could be quite different. Yeah, exactly. And we're going to have belief systems. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I just, I think, I, I'm not against belief systems at all. I think it's just important to make a clear distinction between what, how far can the science actually tell us? Yeah. You know, what, and versus what's speculative. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like the data shows that, okay, there's, all this stuff relating to consciousness in the physical world that seems to work in the lab. 
I just like to say, well, what, what does that actually say? And just, you know, make a clear distinction between this is what the science is saying versus this is my personal worldview of like how it all works yeah. and like the forms of energy behind it. Mm-hmm. I'm not against those philosophies at all. I just, I like to distinguish what science is actually telling us mm-hmm. versus what's speculative. Well, one so. of the things that seems very clear to me from science is that, uh, let's talk about the wave-particle duality okay. for a moment in, sure. in physics. If you look for uh, a wave in the double-slit experiment in, mm-hmm. in physics, you'll find waves. If right. you look for particles, you'll find particles, mm-hmm. uh, which suggests that consciousness is somehow involved in uh, what manifests physically. And some people have said, well, if, if it can be true at the quantum physical level like that, it's a very fine distinction between a quantum physical effect and the fundamental place where a chaotic or turbulent system is activated. It could be even be a quantum mechanical event that could trigger a, a large-scale chaotic event. Yeah, absolutely. And that's this is where I think that um, we're kind of at, I don't want to say impasse, but we're kind of at a, um, a point where people studying turbulence and like macro chaotic phenomena really should be talking to more physicists and about this quantum scale things. I think there are links between the scales that we don't necessarily, we haven't appreciated yet. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think we're at a point where we can really try to connect them. Um, for better or for worse, computing power has dramatically, you know, increased, of course, in the last several decades. And what that allows us to do is model the complexities of turbulence really well, mm-hmm. you know. And so there's, there's a school of thought within the, um, you know, atmospheric science community and not just atmospheric science. Turbulence is relevant in ocean dynamics too and other engineering things. Just want to be, it, turbulence is not just an atmospheric science right. specific thing. But it is especially relevant in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, for again, for better or for worse, models have become very good at um, simulating the complexities of turbulence. And what that allows us to do, to some degree, is bypass the physical, the more fundamental physical questions of what is turbulence, what is randomness, because it allows us to, if you know what I mean, if we can, if, if in our weather models that you know, make forecasts for where hurricanes are going to go and model fluxes in the atmosphere that, you know, um, contribute to all sorts of things. And, you know, uh, if, if in these models, if we can account for the effects of turbulence, you know, some people might think, well, what's the need to really pursue a physical theory anymore if we can model it away? Mm. You know, but I think we really have an opportunity here to discover you know, something really more fundamental about the universe if we can go sort of go back to our interest in the physics of turbulence and how it manifests in the atmosphere and, you know, see if there's a connection with the the smaller quantum level scales. Mm-hmm. It's actually, and there's, physically, there's a lot we don't know. So I was talking to you earlier about how in the classical three-dimensional turbulence model. So just just for the sake of viewers, I just I just want to be clear of what we mean by turbulence. So typically turbulence is 
something you experience on an airplane, right? That's you, but that's really the effects of turbulence, yeah. right? You can see turbulence when you turn on a bathtub faucet. It's basically, you know, because water is a fluid, air is a fluid. Turbulence is the chaotic motion of any fluid. So you can see it in waterfalls.、Um, you can see it in air on the ground. Whenever you see a gust of wind or a sudden change in direction of speed or speed of the wind, it's basically chaotic motion of fluid.、Mm-hmm. And so,、um, in the way that turbulence works, according to the classical model, is you start with these large scale eddies, we call them, which are like these vortices, right? And so those are produced by you know large scale wind shears, like winds moving in different directions and speed at different levels of the atmosphere.、Um, also, thermals is another cause. And these larger eddies, right, then、um, basically cascade down into smaller and smaller eddies. So the the shears from the larger eddies、um, go smaller and smaller. There's actually there's a Nice poem by Lewis Richardson, and that's that's on my website. I don't think I can remember it, but it basically the idea is that you're cascading down to smaller and smaller vortices,、mm-hmm. and so there's sort of this idea I had a while ago of what if there's a piece missing where、um, the butterfly effect really plays into this, where maybe you can start. A perturbation that's really small, and that'll amplify into bigger and bigger vortices somehow. And、um, so that's kind of where I think about this whole consciousness influencing weather thing, and maybe why, even though maybe an average person can't produce a macro PK effect in most systems, like the average person could not levitate this table, but maybe the average person. With just a little bit of training or the right working with some other people, could produce a macro PK effect in the atmosphere, like making a, a shower in a drought or slowing down wind speeds of a hurricane because of the effects of turbulence. If you're starting with a tiny effect, that might bubble up. So that's sort of my motivation into looking at turbulence specifically.、Mm-hmm. And there's just one other thing I want to say about this is that.、Um, I mentioned that we don't really, you know, from our observations in the classical model, we don't really see small effects bubbling up. So, but I do have a justification for that, which is sort of that we do see it in certain environments. So, for example, in the daytime boundary layer, as we call it, the layer of air that's, you know,、um, from the surface to typically one or two kilometers above. Uh, that's if that um where there's a lot of turbulence,、mm. right? That'll be three dimensional because that that's a deep enough layer where you're getting turbulence. But at night, we see that、um, the layer of turbulence is actually very shallow,、mm. right? We call that the stable boundary layer, and it's typically formed by you have a jet of fast winds a few hundred meters above the surface and pretty calm winds at the surface, so. That's causing a lot of shear of the fluid, and that shear is inducing some vorticities. And so,、um, my advisor actually, you know, gave me this thought, which I think actually, you know, kind of it makes sense. And I don't know if other atmospheric scientists have thought of it this way, but it kind of makes sense. Is that a reason we don't really understand nighttime turbulence so well? 
And the reason it's so complex is because it's actually two-dimensional turbulence. And in models of two-dimensional turbulence, we've seen that you can actually get that classic butterfly effect where you start with a very small change and that'll amplify tremendously. The butterfly effect is, uh, as I understand it, based on the idea that a butterfly flapping its wings in China could uh, end up causing a hurricane in the Caribbean. Right. Pretty much. That's, that's the idea. Mm-hmm. Because it's just such a complex system, and it's very hard to say where an effect started. I also so. gather that the butterfly refers to the uh, shape of the, um, I suppose it would be the mathematical calculations involved in, in mapping out uh, chaos and turbulence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a good way to think of it. Yeah, so that's sort of my motivation for approaching this subject of weather influence with you know, well, how can I set up an experiment that might look for what's going on at the most basic level? I suspect it has something to do with turbulence. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about your research because sure. uh, actually one of the main reasons I want to do this uh, video with mm-hmm. you, Danny, is is to uh, recruit participants. Oh, that'll be great. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we'll put a link to the website. We will put a link. Okay. In fact, I'll, I can put the link right now on, <laughs> on the screen so people can write it down. Uh, uh, they'll see it on their screen. I, um, maybe we can even talk about a hot link, but at least we'll have a, uh, a visual link for people and we can repeat it in the comments mm-hmm. section under this video. So yeah. that experiment will be running. People can log into the website and actually mm-hmm. participate from wherever they're located. Yep. Mm-hmm. That'll be great. And so the basic idea is that you uh, will log into the system and um, sort of create a user ID and in 30 seconds, it, it, the total experiment takes about 10 minutes. And the idea is when you're instructed to uh, invite chaos, as we call it, um, your goal is to, at this site where we're measuring, uh, you're trying to increase uh, turbulence, try to disturb the air, make it more turbulent. Mm-hmm. And then when it says relax, you would basically relax. And it's... It's pretty simple. It's, uh, you know, one session takes 10 minutes and, um, you'll, uh, unfortunately, uh, I do not have live feedback yet. I, you know, might be able to get that in the future, but they can, participants will be able to see their scores, Mm -hmm. um, a couple of days or, Hopefully no more than like a day or two after they do the experiment on the scoreboard. And and perhaps some talented programmers who are watching can contact you and uh, help you install the live feedback That as would be well. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so what, <laughs> as I understand it, they're, um, you're looking at uh, sonic, uh, what is the name of the instrument? Sonic anemometer. Sonic anemometers that are located in uh, Platteville, Colorado. Correct, yeah. So a sonic anemometer is basically, uh, so we think of things that measure wind, they typically have a few cups on them. Yeah. Um, but the problem is, if you want to measure turbulence, which is the rapid fluctuations in the wind speed, a cup anemometer is not going to respond fast enough to those rapid changes. Mm. So a sonic anemometer basically has transducers, which send out ultrasonic pulses between the uh, transducers in both directions. 
And uh, that is the case in three components, both the x, y, or the x, y, and z component. And basically, it's measuring the speed of sound in air, which can give you the temperature. And then once you know the temperature, uh, and you take into account that the wind is blowing in one direction, uh, in one direction, the pulse is going to take shorter than the other. And from that, you can get the wind speed. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Tip, uh, this particular sonic is recording data at 32 hertz, which is, so 32 times a second, you have a new data point for, yeah. uh, not just one data point for wind speed, but one data point for each component of, w- of wind speed. So mm-hmm. the X direction, the Y direction, and the Z direction. So this would give you a more precise measurement of, of turbulence uh, than was possible in uh, previous eras. Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, what you'll be comparing is the effects of the 30-second concentration intervals or invitation mm-hmm. intervals, I think you would prefer that term, uh, as compared to the relaxation exactly, in- in- yeah. interval. Although sometimes, you know, with psychokinesis, my sense is that very often you concentrate, you concentrate, and then you relax. And just when you relax is when it happens. Yeah. So there are there are things I can do to actually look for that, which, I mean, technically in the formal hypothesis, that would, you know, if that's the case, that would count against what I'm looking at. Yeah. But if it does look like, okay, there's this 30-second lag, I could always run the experiment again, yeah. adjusting the lag times in the mm. formal hypothesis. Another thing I can do is look at power spectrum. So basically, I would take a Fourier transform of the wind signal. Fourier transform. Fourier transform, yeah. sorry, yeah. <laughs> Fourier transform of the wind signal to um, uh, look at what size eddies are being affected. So mm-hmm. in turbulence, if you take a Fourier transform, you will get a very um, specific slope uh, in log-log space. It's a minus five-third slope. That is your classical, what we call the inertial subrange of turbulence between mm. the production scales and the scales where it's dissipating. Uh, so in that range, you'll get a very exact slope. So if consciousness is distorting that in some way, and it's and my hypothesis is right that it's distorting the smaller signals and that's bubbling up, you might see that the slope will be elevated towards the smaller end of that spectrum. You see what I'm saying? Or if it's working the other way, where it's actually consciousness happens to be working on the larger eddies and it's still cascading mm-hmm. down, mm-hmm. you would see that slope deviate on the higher end or the, the lower yeah. frequency end of the spectrum. Well, this is so, so exciting to yeah. me. Yeah. It's, it gives us a chance to actually look at what's going on, I think, which mm-hmm. is, which is why Again, why I, you know, think this is a good, like, turbulence is a great place to start with this. Well, I, I want to encourage our viewers Mm -hmm. to check out your experiment and to participate. You're not looking for people who have, uh, highly evolved psychokinetic talent. I mean, they, they can participate too. Yeah. You're not (laughs) ruling them out. Right. But you're looking at, you know, the overall population. But Mm -hmm. you, I did look at your website and it's almost like a video game in that you list (laughs) who the highest scorers are. Right. That Mm -hmm. kind of gives motivation. Yeah. In a sense. So you'll be able to determine 
determine if some people happen to have special abilities, you might want to even uh, engage with them further. And I think I should also mention, yes, that is that is true, Um, because this is sort of a first pass at a at a large scale experiment Mm -hmm. that looks at weather influence. Um, I should emphasize further, though, that um, I would love to see data really at all times of day, because I as I explained earlier, you know, there's the daytime turbulence, which is very different from nighttime turbulence. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think if we can look for differences in different environments with different stabilities, where turbulence naturally behaves differently, that'll tell us a whole wealth of information about what's actually going on, where you're getting this, where exactly you're getting this interaction between consciousness and physical world specifically the atmosphere in this and the case. acoustic anemometers that you're mm-hmm. using are they're operating sonic anemometers uh, right. sonic <laughs> so, <laughs> acoustic <call> sonic <laughs> the sonic anemometers are operating 24 hours a day yes putting out uh, 32 32 hertz 32 hertz so 32 signals every second correct uh-huh yeah 24 hours a day. It's an incredible research tool to, right. to apply to this kind of project. They're, yeah, they're very large data files, as you can imagine. Yeah, <laughs> but um, but yeah, with exceptions of, I mean, occasionally it'll like very rarely it'll it'll go offline. In which case, I'll you know temporarily pause the experiment. But mm-hmm. um, most of the time, it it it, it 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 theoretically it should be continuous. Mm-hmm. Um. Another thing I want to mention just to sort of motivate participants is because something I mentioned in the very beginning of this interview is that we want, when we're, whenever we're doing weather working, we want to sort of connect it with a larger purpose, not just I'm controlling the weather, you know. There is an actual benefit to turbulence in this lowest layer of the atmosphere. And I can give one example of that, um, directly from my graduate research. I was talking about at night how you have uh, what we call a low-level jet that um, is, you know, a layer of stronger winds around, you know, in the case of the Central Valley we were looking at. I just want to be, this isn't everywhere, but in Central Valley of Central California, Valley of California, which is where you live. Right. And yeah. where there's a ozone problem that hasn't really been going away compared to like, uh, you know, in Los Angeles, they've been getting way better with their uh, with fixing their ozone problem. In the Central Valley, it hasn't really been getting better, and that's because the, the dynamics around it are very complicated. Mm. And especially the nighttime dynamics, and specifically what I was saying before about turbulence at night being very complicated. Well, what we think's happening, you know, this is sort of the working hypothesis I'm putting out in a paper that's about to get published, um, is... Um, what this low-level jet is doing is, again, because of that shear, it's inducing turbulence in this lower layers of the atmosphere. And when you have a strong jet producing a lot of this lower-level turbulence, what you're doing is you're taking this ozone from the previous day, uh, that's in this what we call the residual layer above the jet, and then it's actually it's mixing down some of that stronger ozone at night and bringing it to the surface. So you might think that's a bad thing because, well, isn't that going to make more ozone at the surface? But actually at night, what that's doing is um, it's bringing it, bringing it into the surface 
where it's being, it's undergoing dry deposition, as we call it, which is it's the ozone is being deposited into the soils and mm-hmm. vegetation. And so that actually makes less ozone available uh-huh. the following it's day. It's being absorbed. Exactly. Yeah. So it's turbulence is a good thing in that sense, in mm-hmm. that it's cleaning out the air. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of similar in the daytime, too, where if you have a more mixable boundary layer, a more and more... A, 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 a layer of air near the surface that's mixing stronger, you're ventilating those pollutants more, you're dispersing them more, and some of that gets uh, will get mixed upwards into the what we call the free troposphere. Mm-hmm. So turbulence is has um, demonstrable benefits. And I just I wanted to make that point clear that this is not just an experiment of I am controlling the weather and I just want to prove that it's real. It's actually, you know, increasing turbulence does have, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it, it does have benefits. Well, it, very gratifying to me, uh, mm-hmm. having done some early work uh, mm-hmm. in psychokinetic weather control, to see uh, <laughs> that you're taking it to a whole new level. <laughs> now, um, as much as I can, being you know, a grad student. <laughs> well, but, yeah. but you've been focused on this for years now, I, right? I know, and I, uh, my sense is that it's uh, likely to be a project that you'll be uh, pursuing for a long time to come. Mm-hmm. I hope so, and and for perhaps sure. other people in your profession will uh, take a deeper interest in it as well. That'll be great. <laughs> yeah. Well, Danny Caputi, thank you so much for coming to Albuquerque to share all of this with me. I'm, I'm truly thrilled by what you're doing. Well, thanks so much for having me. And yeah, Albuquerque is nice, so I'm enjoying every minute of it. <laughs> great. And thank you for being with us. Thank you.